Hello everyone, this is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with the uh, famous longsword champion, Sam Swords, who is currently in Melbourne, but has spent a lot of time in Montreal, and I believe hails from Australia, but via New Zealand. So rather than mash up their introduction, I'll just say, so Sam, where are you today and what took you there? Hey Guy, thanks for having me. Um, yeah. So I'm in Melbourne, Australia, in a very exciting state of lockdown. I did not expect this. This was not the apocalypse that I was anticipating. I, uh, yeah, not, not enough to, sword um, defenses. Yeah, swords no, work against no, zombies, I mean, but they're useless against corona. It's, it's kind of the apocalypse light, isn't it? It's like, yeah. maybe if we pass this level, we'll get to the, the zombies and aliens or something. Which we've actually prepared for. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I, I came over here um, at the end of, uh, well, end, end of last year, beginning of this year, to come and help with the bushfire effort, because Australia was on fire not so long ago, and uh, I got here and suddenly everything kind of closed. Um, so, but I was, uh, I was living in Montreal, um, Canada before that. And so that what, what were you planning to do with the bushfires? I mean, I, put them out, I, I imagine. I just wanted but... to be here. Um, I anticipated that after the initial kind of um, response had died down, that there would be a, a very uh, strong need for a second wave people. Um, because the first responders were completely burnt out. So I just wanted to kind of put myself here, anticipating all the inevitable, you know, less talked about, less glamorous cleanup and, you know, preparation for next year that was going to need to happen. But um, kind of been a bit of a bit of a uh, strange time because um, I got here and everything kind of just shut down. So. But, but surely the fires are still, well, are, are unaffected by Corona. So what is um, happening? Well, the it's, it's now going into autumn, um, so mm -hmm. everything cooled down, but uh, what I'm thinking about is more the, the, the massive damage to um, areas that are going to take a while to recover. So mm -hmm. those, those areas are not going to fix themselves just, you know, in a few sure. months. Um, and I mean, there's, there's huge economic damage prior to the coronavirus. Um, a lot of rural Australia has been hit by, uh, by all the effects of this. So um, they're losing tourism as an income, they, they're losing all kinds of things. Um, and there's going to be all kinds of roll-on efforts that, that are kind of invisible when this kind of massive disastrous event occurs. And I really just wanted to put myself here because um, historically I've been very useful at helping connect people and kind of affecting positive change in okay. kind of strange and personal ways. Right. Okay. So that's, that explains what took you to Melbourne. Uh, not the answer I was expecting at all. <laughs> uh, Surprise, Jason. <laughs> um, so, but in, I believe before you went to Montreal, you were working for Weta Workshops, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, so, I was in New Zealand. I left Australia um, uh, at 18, actually, and um, uh -huh. decided that I really didn't want to be here for a lot of reasons. And um, New Zealand was a lot better for all the reasons, which I think the world is starting to realise now. Um, <laughs> well, so yes. I, yeah, it seems yeah. to be like the poster child for successful corona response. Astonishing, I think. And no, and no one's yes, but and, and no one is surprised that it's New Zealand that is this poster child. <laughs> Completely. When, when, when all the um, other countries grow up, they want to be New Zealand. Right, right. Uh, no, the, the, the very funny thing is, um, my parents are in um, 
uh, New Zealand and Vietnam, which are the two countries mm -hmm. that have completely crushed the, uh, the coronavirus um, for entirely different reasons. Uh, Vietnam is a very successful one-party country, um, right. which has used its powerful propaganda machine to completely shut down what it has a lot of experience with, which is, you know, basically viruses brought in from other countries around it. And, right. and they completely dealt with it. Um, and then in New Zealand, um, we, uh, we dealt with it in a, a very socialist kind of way. So, except it's not a socialist country. So it's very right. interesting. Um, but I digress. Uh, so the, um, the move to New Zealand was because uh, I was very passionate about um, fantasy and filmmaking. And uh, at the time, um, Lord of the Rings was the biggest thing. And yep. I wanted to work in the film industry. So I put myself there, not having a clue of what I was going to do or how I was going to do it, but I really wanted to work for Weta. And I wanted to work on The Hobbit. And mm -hmm. uh, took it took a while, but I eventually did that. How on earth did you manage? I mean, that, that's the sort of thing that, that people dream about. It's like, I know, I, I want to work in the film industry. I like fantasy. I'm just going to go to New Zealand and work for Weta Workshops on The Hobbit. That's what I'm going to do. And yeah, yeah. How, how did you actually pull that off? Well, uh, I think there's this wonderful kind of local effect in a place like mm -hmm. New Zealand, where um, if you are actually living there, it's... Uh, it's not that hard to kind of get involved with things and um, I really just applied time so it wasn't a very it wasn't an immediate thing at all it was uh, right. definitely a lot of persistence and a lot of other people doing really good things for me um, that uh, eventually led to those opportunities um, okay and what yeah. did you do for them what was your job I did all kinds of things um, so I started as a, a more or less an assistant and I was kind of tossed around different departments um, uh, helping right. deal with different, different like anything, anything that mm -hmm. I did, um, with a few exceptions. And yeah, I, over the four years that I was there, I kind of, I kind of just became a professional assistant. Um, right. Which is kind of how I describe myself in the film industry in general. Um, so I now have like ten years of technical knowledge, um, materials knowledge, and and all kinds of things, and I know all kinds of things I don't know that I know, <laughs> but um. When I was at Weta, I was more or less assisting with processes and projects um, and pipelines and, you know, just random things, just being very responsive and, and having um, kind of enough technical skill to catch the ball and not drop it when it was thrown in my direction, um, which is a very vague kind of response, but it's also very broad. It's a very, very broad uh, range of skills that that kind of place covers. So. Sure. Yeah. Mm. And making then stuff. Montreal? Making stuff. So, so did you actually make stuff with your own hands? I surely did. Excellent. Because uh, I, I know you've done quite a lot of artistic stuff. I've, I've uh, seen some of your t-shirt designs, for example. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I'm very happy with my t-shirts. And, and I'm very happy to plug them on this podcast. So if you'd like to tell everybody oh, where they can you. get them, go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. I'm um, about to bring out a, uh, a few more for Pride uh, in June. Excellent. Uh, and where, where can we find them? Um, Sam Swords on Etsy or Samantha Swords on Etsy. Okay, good to know. So, uh, Montreal. Montreal. What, what took you to Montreal? I mean, Canada's a lovely oh my place, goodness. But, but it's a long way from New Zealand. It sure, sure is. Uh, so, after, um, oh goodness, a grand series of 
Adventures and Affairs of the Heart. I found mm-hmm. myself in North America. Um, right. I had heard good things about uh, Canada in terms of the film industry, and right. I um, kind of for the first time really put myself out there to work on films without the protective kind of uh, sanctity of New Zealand, where everything kind of came to us. Um, so it was my first time. It's my first time really kind of being like, I am a th- I'm a film professional, I'm a technician, um, I want to work on stuff, how do we do it in, you know, the world outside? So um, I was in Vancouver for a while, and mm-hmm. I was working on some big budget films there, and then um, a strange thing happened where um, <laughs> a lot of the world suddenly knew about me and wanted to do interesting things and offer me strange strange and unusual opportunities um okay one of those people was we can talk about that (laughs) yes well um it was a very odd period of my life uh Mm -hmm. tell you that (laughs) so what Um, happened was um i i was invited to montreal but we can say okay okay i i mean if you'd like to talk about you know what happened and and the ramifications of that i'm sure people would like to hear what happened capital capital W and capital H. Yes. Ah, what happened? Goodness. The world needed someone to fill a role, I think, is what happened. Um, and uh, I happened to fit that role. Okay. Um, right place, right time. So I uh, had been um, fairly enthusiastically and somewhat naively sharing <laughs> my exploits and adventures Um in little old New Zealand, uh, where I'd started swordsmanship and mm-hmm. um, been trained by the wonderful people over at uh, Apple Hat Martial Arts Academy. Um, right. Some of whom I believe you're familiar. Absolutely. Um, so those fine, fine folks um, gave me a fairly solid and fantastic grounding in martial arts, um, specifically historical martial arts. And I uh, left um, New Zealand and went across to North America and I kind of um, found myself in this unique position of being the shiny new thing that people wanted to talk about. Um, and I didn't know the rules for North America mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the culture and the HEMA scene outside yeah. of New Zealand. Um, so I, I was rather rather good at promoting myself and it got right. I, my story got picked up and it got promoted and, and suddenly I became this kind of living legend that had a life of its own, um, filling all the hopes and dreams of everybody, um, which was astonishing. Um, And at the time, I mean, I I just went with it because (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of fun to be involved with that. But um, I think through that experience, I I definitely learned a lot. Um, And I always had the desire to be in a position of leadership. So I kind of took every opportunity that was given to me Mm -hmm. and turned it a, a little bit into, you know, trying to help people to towards personal leadership or personal growth in some way, because those were things okay. that I value. Okay, so we're talking about a longsword competition. <laughs> we are. Is that right? We're talking. Yeah, good. Okay, just, just to put this in context, right? I, I'm not really good at the whole social media thing, and I tend to, unless people actually like take something and stick it in front of my face and say, guy, this is what's going on, I tend to be oblivious to it all. I just kind of get on and do my <laughs> oh own my thing. Oh my goodness. Right? And That's- and at some not a bad point, thing, sir. Well, no. And at some, and at some point a few years ago, 
like a whole bunch of my friends from different places, most of whom have nothing to do with swords, email me this story about somebody winning a longsword competition that has made it into mainstream media. And that was you, as I recall. Yes, I believe so. I, I think so. The, the faded memories. Uh, right. Are so, so what, 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 what was the competition? So the competition was a regional competition for New Zealand, mm -hmm. and okay. it was a um, subset of the Harcourt Park Invitational Jousting Tournament, which is actually a right. fairly big deal. Sure. And so the main event is a is a jousting event, right? And it's uh, that is a big run deal. under the international. A big part. That is a big deal. Horses and armor, and that takes a lot of doing. Yeah. Well, it's it's organised by Callum Forbes and. Yep. Um, it's Excellent a, fellow, a very, very high standard event, um, a very high standard event and uh, held to the, the highest standards of the international mm -hmm. jousting, you know, um, sure. organization. It's, it's a sport. It's a, it's a legitimate yeah. sport. And um, Callum has done a fantastic job over the years of creating this really, really quality event in little old New Zealand that attracts international competitors and um, he runs it as well as a, as a kind of a, a medieval living history event sure. um, or, you know, similar to a Ren Faire, but with a little bit uh, more stricter standards. Sure. Um, so the um, the attraction is, is very, uh, <laughs> very clear to, to everybody. It's, it's a big deal. So yep. he was also trying to incorporate Western martial arts, um, which mm -hmm. is what it was called at the time. Um, I am very proud to be of the generation that still calls it Western Martial <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> just on the we cusp, we, we just got in. I, I, I remember when Western Martial Arts as a term was sort of, sometime in the late 90s, people came up with it as a, as a thing. And before that, we'd been doing historical fencing. So yeah, nice. I, I remember the birth of the term. Mm. Um, anyway, sorry, I digress. No, no, so, I mean, so you're, you're, at, you're, at this, you're, at, you're at this massive <laughs> event um with horses I and am. jousters and stuff and you have some long I am. and so, so what happened next? so what happened next oh my goodness here's the story <sighs> the event was almost cancelled right because there was a scheduling conflict right oh my goodness here it comes um so what happened was um, the previous time that the event had run, there were a couple of uh, safety problems in that some of the people that competed should not have been competing and they hurt themselves. Right. And the effect was that the event that I went into, um, the previous year, two people had gone to hospital. Eesh. And I haven't talked about this until now because um, I... I didn't want to bring attention to that aspect because Callum was running a mm -hmm. very, very responsible event and it wasn't sure. his fault that this happened. But sure. the effect was it scared off everybody from this one right. competition, which right. was Longsword. And okay. there was also a sword and buckler component and it was run under the rules of... Basically, um, it was a variation on what most HEMA tournaments are run by in that we had points we were trying to defend rather than score them off the other person, but otherwise it was oh, okay. exactly like the HEMA tournament. Yeah, no, it was a really good approach because it um, encourages defense. Could you just, than... just, just, just describe it in a bit of detail because I'm sure people will find that interesting. 
Yeah, certainly. Um, so this was Colin McKinstry's idea. Um, right. And it yeah, was, I know Colin. Uh, to, yes. Uh, so Colin, um, Colin wanted to encourage defense in competition rather than um, kind of putting yourself out there for these almost suicidal attempts sure. of, you know, scoring points on the other person. So he reversed the yeah. usual, which was um, usually you try and get a point off somebody, but instead mm -hmm. you had to defend your point. Right. So you're more or less just letting your opponent do the silly thing. Right. So okay. if you can outlast your opponent doing the silly thing, you win. Mm -hmm. And um, I haven't seen it practiced that way since, and I'm very converted to the idea because it did change how I fought on the day. And it, it you know, I, anyone I've spoken to um, who has, uh, you know, more than intermediate martial arts experience sees the the value in it. So sure. yeah, it was it it was a defensive scoring system rather than um, you know trying to go out there and get a you yeah. know but, faster but, than but interestingly, I, you know any economist will tell you that losing a pound is it it doesn't it doesn't actually make any difference. Um, you know if. If you and I were fencing, and let's say we start out with five points each, and every time I hit you, you lose a point, mm -hmm. um, or the other way around, it makes absolutely no difference whether it's you losing a point or me gaining a point, except that human beings are very resistant to losing things. They would rather not mm -hmm. lose something than gain something, right? That's a very so good it's, way of putting it. It's a purely psychological hack. It doesn't actually make any practical difference to what ought to work in the tournament. It's mm. pure psychology. Because However, it's like you... Go ahead, yeah. No, I mean, sorry, please continue. I'm interested in you finishing. Yeah, so, so let's say, you know, you hit me five times, I only hit you three times, you win. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's the same whichever way around the, the, the points are scored. Okay, so let's change the economy. Okay. Instead of it being five pounds, say fifty thousand pounds. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but again, the in terms of in terms of the fencing. Um, sorry, in terms of the, the way the points are scored, the difference in whether you lose points or gain points is entirely psychological. It, it doesn't is, actually. Yes. So so at least in theory, the same tactics that win tournaments. That where you score points by hitting somebody should work in this sort of tournament, but people are reluctant to do it because they have this psychological predisposition to avoid losing things, right? Which isn't there when the points are scored the other way around. Mm hmm Exactly. So it's, so it's, it's a very yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting interesting psychological hack. But it's it's vital because psychology is everything in a fight. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that it wasn't. I didn't mean that to sort of denigrate. Psychology, oh, I think we're psychology. saying the same thing. Yeah. No, I, I think yeah. we're saying the same thing. It's just we're discussing it mm. from two angles. Yeah. Okay, um, sorry. So there you are in this tournament um, where a lot of people haven't joined up because last year things went wrong. And it is a... You have to hold on to the points you've got rather than score points. Yeah, okay. All what I did was turn up and I didn't mess it up, guy. That is all <laughs> I did. But how often is that the case? You know, for pretty much anything. You just show up and don't fuck it up and everything's fine. 
that's that's what happened. It's it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I'm not going to go in this competition. I'm never going to win. It's like no, actually, like when the competition pool is not like when when everyone else decides not to go in the competition, and you're one of yeah. the few people who does. Yeah. Yep. It got me in a lot of hot water later because the numbers came out of the competition, which it's for a long time I was very embarrassed until I looked at it from the wider context of the fact that 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 event had run the previous year with probably. I think it was something like 80 people in it or something or more. Right. And, it, you know, so it wasn't a small event. It was just the fact that people didn't show. And right. I didn't want to bring attention to that to keep people's face because a lot of those people who didn't show were my friends. They're fighters. You know, they're proud. Right. They and also... And they're, they're totally entitled to not turn up. Absolutely. Sorry. Although in medieval terms, um, if that was a medieval feat of arms and you were standing there holding the field and people don't show up, you automatically win anyway. So, Very true. you know, that's, that's a question of, you know, knightly virtue, the boldness I, to show up. Look, I know, I know I fought well that day. I was proud of how I fought. It wasn't exceptional. It wasn't the best fight I've ever done. Um, but I fought well. I fought better than my opponents. There you go. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I won the thing. I won the bloody thing. Excellent. Um, so that, that was... That was sort of after you've been training fencing for a while. So how did you get into training longsword? And what, what brought you to swords? What brought me to swords? Well, uh, when I was two, um, I think I watched Peter Pan. And right. uh, it was basically all on from there. So... Fair? <laughs> no, I, uh, it, it took me a very long time to get into historical fencing because uh, I didn't know it existed. And sure. I was finding it in other ways, but... It was kind of pre-2000s, and I didn't have an awareness that, that it was a thing until I found it on the internet and sure. um, kind of looked for groups that were doing it um, in New Zealand and uh, finally lucked out on, on Colin and uh, Callum's, Callum's Martial Arts Academy, um, where I kind of just embraced everything and learned as much as they could teach me. Mm -hmm. Which is quite a lot, given that they're rather well, yeah, yeah. special artists. Y yes, yes. Uh, I've, I've met both of them, and uh, I've, I've never wrestled Colin, and I wouldn't. <laughs> um, yes, but, but yes, but I, I can imagine it would be hard to get a better start in martial arts than showing up to their classes. So what I'm was it like? I'm deeply grateful for that. Um, and then Mike, Mike O'Hara joined the mix uh, at some point okay. and um, between all of them. And he's the head of style for Freestyle Karate in New Zealand. Right. So he was my sparring so we, partner. Oh, wow. So, so were you doing, I know Callum teaches Hapkido as well. So were you doing Hapkido as well or was it just the, just the swords? I, I visited the Hapkido, um, but I uh, mainly was focusing on Western, um, Western martial arts. And um, I was also doing mounted combat with them as well. Oh, cool. So you can ride then? I can. Excellent. Yeah, I, I can ride a little bit. Not well enough to fight on horses. No way. <laughs> um, but yes, excellent. So uh, I imagine that when you left New Zealand, you had to leave that training group behind. So what happened next in your sword career? Yeah. Well, uh, I was catapulted to irreversible fame, 
and every <laughs> single martial arts club I turned up I, I knew who I was. So it was very right. difficult. Very difficult to find a place to train. Sure. Because as I as I've been saying for a while, you know, you need to make mistakes in martial arts and if you right. are in a place where everyone expects you to be perfect or, you know, has a very high expectation of you, it's sure. debilitating. Yeah. Do you know what I do? When I'm teaching a class, if there's people What's I don't that? know and I and I feel there's a bit of um, I don't know, it's like they are they may be a little bit nervous because, you know, I'm quite well known in my field and blah, blah, blah. And this maybe their first class with this well-known instructor and they feel they have to be perfect and they feel like maybe I'm judging them or whatever. Um, so what I do is I fuck something up. Right. So and, and just as a normal, I mean, I, I, I will sometimes have to deliberately screw something up because I'm not making enough mistakes early enough. Um, mm -hmm. But I make the mistake point it out and move on from it without it being an issue. Mm. And it just normalizes the idea of you're not here to do it right, you're here to do it better. Mm. Excellent. And it, 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 it really helps with that because it is, it is a really oppressive and impossible training environment if you are expected to be perfect. Because all you can do it's, is fail. You can't. You can't. Yeah. There's no growth. You, right, I mean, exactly. You can, you can, do moves or something, perhaps you can perform yeah. a certain technique perfectly, but there's, there's no organic growth um, right. in, in the process, you know? Okay. So actually, so, it, it set me on a very interesting learning path because all my training from that moment had to be chaotic and uh, bits and pieces here and there because I'd lost the safe structure of, you know, yeah. the, the training environment that I'd had in New Zealand. Um, so I kind of... I was very embarrassed about it for a while until I realized that actually it made me a better learner because I was able to apply what I'd, what I'd learned into very dynamic environments. Right. Um, which ultimately made me better um, and more okay. adaptable as a fighter. So are you, are you training at the moment? Right. Currently now, um, I admit I'm not. Um, okay. I am... So it's the great irony. I'm, I'm actually uh, neighboring two fantastic medievalists who are very enthusiastic about HEMA. And okay. um, uh, all of us have gone into our kind of artistic focused states over the last week or so. And um, yes, um, I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing weights training, but I'm, uh, mm -hmm. I haven't been doing anything uh, since basically the lockdown. Okay. So, but that was that's in in Melbourne. So what were you doing in Montreal, swordwise? Montreal, hmm. in Montreal, I had a um, I had a group of people that I trusted that I trained with. Mm -hmm. um, so I have um, over the years over the years of trying to figure out how to train. Um, I've kind of found people of advanced skill that I asked to be my training partner. And um, as I'm traveling around, because I haven't always been in Montreal as well. Um, right. I've actually been fairly nomadic, semi-nomadic over the past few years. Um, I've, I've tended to kind of gravitate towards people that I trusted. Um, and I've had a few, I've had a few instances of being injured um, that have made me very careful because uh, right. some of which was deliberate, some of it was not. Um, deliberate so injuries. So people have been yes. deliberately injuring you. 
Yes. Okay. That's profoundly offensive. Um, yes. Is, is it something you feel comfortable discussing? Uh, actually, yeah, I spoke about it at Valkyrie uh, when I went to uh, teach at the Big Gay Sword Day that um, oh, right. yep. the, the Valkyrie Western Martial Arts Assembly ran last year. Yep. Um, yeah, I talked about safety, intimacy and safety in martial arts practice. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I actually gave a whole speech on it. <laughs> Um, it was more about calibration than deliberate intent to harm. Okay. Um, and the, the result was, I was injured to the point that I didn't know if I was going to be okay. Um, okay. By somebody who should have, by, by the fact of their position, should have known better. Um, and right. me, by the fact of my position, should have known better, and we had no one Above us to kind of oversee the situation because we were the most, right. you know, we were the tallest in the room, kind of thing. Do you think? Do you think that would have helped? I think so, because I'm always used to having someone to look to, um, oh, okay. and having someone to look to who's more experienced than me, who can call when things are getting too intense or. If, even if they don't, just having that kind of reference point gives yeah, me sure. a framework to judge the situation by. Yep. Okay. Because I've also done other martial arts as well. I've done um, Muay Thai kickboxing. I've trained in right. Thailand. Um, I was taught by a, Canadian, uh, a Cambodian um, champion. Like I've had, mm -hmm. I've had people who do these really intense um, physical, physical combat sports um, who've been my instructors in the past. So the level of intensity that um, I've been able to go to in my own fighting has always been tempered by having someone who really does actually know when things are going to go bad and putting myself in positions where um, I didn't have those people kind of moderating. Uh, right. it, it led to some very unsafe situations. And the, the talk that I gave at Valkyrie was actually um, paralleling those kind of circumstances with um, having sex with people that you don't know. Um, and I directly okay. paralleled the intimacy of martial arts with the intimacy of meeting someone and deciding if it's safe to, to do that. Hmm. Okay. Do you, can you tell us a bit more about the injury itself? What, what happened? Uh, <sighs> what happened was I hadn't been training for a couple of weeks and I was hungry. Right. Sort of aspiring situation. And I met somebody um, at an event that I was invited to just speak at. I wasn't even yep. expected to perform, as it were. Yeah. Um, and uh, the two of us just wanted to kind of put our masks on and... Have a bit fast posh. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah nothing wrong um, with that. It's perfectly normal behavior. Right, exactly. And, you know, yeah. all the words were normal and all the things, all the terminology was, was normal. I didn't, I didn't pick up on any problems. Um, and I've got a fairly good you know, awareness of people. Um, sure. But the problem happened when uh, we actually started fighting was his intensity and the power of his strikes was way, way, way overcharged. Um, okay. And the protective gear that we were wearing was not suitable for those strikes. Right. Um, and I... I fell into that trap of being like, oh, it's my fault, I should defend better. Rather than right. stopping and yeah. saying, hey, dude, you are actually in danger of hurting me. Can you kind of 
kind sure. of down a bit. Um, and the problem was we were in an environment I didn't know where um, I was being looked to as being a senior. And right. I kind of felt like I could get on top of it instead of recognizing, hey, this is really unsafe. I just didn't, I didn't have the, the flag of this is really unsafe because I, I probably just wanted to, try, I wanted to spar. And um, he hit me in the face. Um, I was wearing a mask and I was wearing a mouth guard, which I habitually use when I fence people I don't know. And I'm sure. so glad I did because um, the mask slammed back into my face and uh, put my jaw out of alignment and the, uh, um, the mask, like brush on my face, um, superficially yeah. just cutting me very small. Like the, that was okay. It, it, that was okay because I was wearing a mouth guard, but it was way too powered. Um, and sure. I kept going and then he hit me in the chest, um, so hard, uh, that I couldn't close my arms for two weeks. Okay. Um, and I couldn't see a doctor because I didn't have health insurance, which is also a very iffy part of fact yeah. that I was doing that in the first place. Um, yeah, that whole thing. Very American problem that. It's right. Yeah, it is. I have huge sympathy now. Um, having lived as someone who doesn't have healthcare um, in a foreign country, and trying to have fun and trying to do things, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I I was um, I was hit so hard in the chest, and there was a possibility that my my ribs cracked or. Um, oh. Sorry. Right. Slight technical hitch. Sorry, I'm gesticulating right. dramatically. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, so yeah, I was, I was actually more concerned about the possibility that a, a bone fragment could break off and go into my heart, because that's the thing. Yep. Um, so yeah, it was bad. It was very bad. Um, and yeah, I kind of self, self-moderated uh, my, my training and recovery after that. Um, I knew I wasn't bad enough to, you know, like it was getting better, but it was just very, very slow. Um, but it was, it caused me to really re-examine um, meeting people in martial arts circumstances, which are informal, and the right. safety and conversations that need to be had around that. So I've done a huge amount of thinking about that because I overthink a lot of things. and. Um, I do think that there is definitely need for those discussions um, sure. because there is a very Wild West kind of approach to a lot of people meeting with swords. Um, perhaps not yeah. so much in the HEMA scene now, but definitely around the fringes of it. Yes, it's I've, I've experienced not the same thing, but um, I know what it's like to be put in a position where you are expected to structure your stuff, even though that's not what you're there to do. Um, and I got a couple of really good pieces of advice a long time ago when I started my school in Finland. Um, this very experienced karate guy called Yari Renko, who's done traditional Japanese martial arts and have you, very experienced martial artist. Um, one thing I was worried about was dojo busting, which was you know where people come in and say you know who the hell are you to be teaching this martial art and they challenge you to a real fight. Mm. Um, and so I said, I asked him, I said, what do I do? if that happens. Because on the one hand, if I fight the person, if I'm any good, 
they're probably going to get hurt. And if I'm not good enough, I'm going to get hurt. It's not a good situation for anybody. No. And he was like, he was like this totally senior martial arts dude. And he said, we call the police. <laughs> I was like, whoa, you mean I don't have to fight absolutely every son of a bitch who wants to fight me? Really? Awesome. Wow. It was like permission from above to just decline mm. fights that I didn't want to do. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, but it's difficult because, you know, a lot of people are perfectly um, well-intentioned, but not necessarily that well self-moderated or that well or that skilled, put you at risk. Um, and some people want to fight you for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Like they want to fight you to prove that they're better or they want to fight yeah. you because, you know, and you often can't tell from the manner in which they ask what they're really asking for. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, it, it's, it's a difficult, I'm, difficult I'm very fortunate because I started with the extremely grounded down to earth people that I mentioned in the beginning, which is, yes. you know, Callum, Colin yeah. and Mike, who um, right. were just total steady rocks for me and mm-hmm. kind of work, helped me work through my rambunctious kind of stallion behavior of my early year. My, my very first year, all I wanted to do was fight everyone. I wanted to fight yeah, and know how good I was and be proven yeah, yeah, yeah. and get an idea of my standing and my rank. And, and then they kind of just stumped it out of me in a very wonderful <laughs> way. <laughs> uh, because I those, can imagine. Those, oh my goodness, they, they're just, they're fantastic. And um, at the time I was very frustrated because I had no way to kind of assess myself. But then one day I just kind of got it and realized I didn't need to. And have been that way I've had that attitude since more or less since I was training with them so many years ago. And when I went over to North America, I, I maintained that attitude. I think the problem that I had with this, this situation that I mentioned was just, um, I, I think I just really wanted to have a good fight and I didn't necessarily mm-hmm. want to go hard. I just wanted to have someone to spar with because I hadn't had it for a couple of weeks and Sure. Um, not having a regular training in place um, left me vulnerable because I yeah. was hungry. I was hungry. Sure. And so. over eight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. E- easily done. Okay. So, um, you're known for longsword. Do you have any other weapons interests, any other martial arts interests? Well, here's the thing, is when things get too popular, I kind of lose interest. Yeah. I hate to say it because it makes me sound awfully, you know, hipster or something, but I've been that way with everything. It's like, I haven't even watched the latest Star Wars. It's far too flippin' popular. It's terrible. <laughs> okay, right. That, that, that's <laughs> so a, that's a disease, Sam. That's a disease. Okay, so so you're you're not too keen on longsword anymore. What kind what kind of swords no, do float your it's, boat? It's not that. It's it's just that it's. I'm always interested by things on the fringes. I'm always interested in things, things that are being discovered or put together for for the first time, kind of the frontier in a way. And when I was doing longsword, I mean, I, I still love longsword. I still love doing it. Sure. Um, I think it just comes down to being overwhelmed by how much information there is out there. Um. Kind of look for things that are a little bit easier to process which is often those things that are kind of unusual or those big questions and then i can go down mm-hmm. the kind of research rabbit hole as it were okay um so yeah i i discovered sword and buckler um a 
few years ago okay. and it is my All right. massive passion. I'm so okay. into it. What um, kind of sword and buckler? Uh, mostly um, I-33 era, although I won't, I won't claim to study I-33. Okay. But kind of earlier, um, earlier medieval. And who are you, I mean, what research are you doing? Who, who are you talking to? This is all kinds of bits and pieces putting together. I think I've gone back to the early days, honestly. Um, just getting whatever I can and kind of figuring out what works. Um, it's awfully illegitimate of me to sort of say <laughs> that, but that's what I do. So. Well, that's that, that's um, fine. I mean, as long as, as long as as long as you know you you're honest about what what you're doing and representing that faithfully, it's all you know. You don't have to. Uh, Pick one treatise and study it exclusively and, and become an expert in medieval German and read Latin and all that kind of stuff. But it's totally okay if you do those things, right? <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But as long, as long as you don't, you know, say you're reading Latin when actually you're not, it's fine. Mm. Yeah. No, I, um, no, I'm very passionate about the practice of it. Um, okay. So really what I, what I think I do is just find other people who are interested in fencing and... and we see what works, and if it doesn't work, then we figure out why. Okay. Um, Any so specifics on that? Any... Um, probably the greatest thing that I, I found with the sword and buckler practice was, was the hip hinge from um, Roland Warjecker, what he studied. Okay. Yep. When I started applying that to my sword and buckler, it just became the most effective and defensive... Uh, yeah, I... Fencing combination. Um, so all of my all of my practice with sword and buckler is, is working from the hip hinge, and it's it's just so beautiful, so flipping okay, okay. beautiful. Not everyone <laughs> listening to this will know what a hip hinge is. Would you? Oh like yes, to sorry, it? terribly sorry. Before That's I right. nerd out. No, no, That's fine. We're here to nerd after all. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so the hip hinge. Um, so it is basically the uh, the move that um, weightlifters use when they're picking up heavy weights. Is they kind of um, it's kind of like a squat in a way, where you kind of stick your bum out and you're using you're using the mechanical structure of your body um, in a way that we we're kind of not really taught how to do in our present society. Um, but mm -hmm. up until kind of early early last century, people were using it fairly actively um, in their daily lives. It's just that we've kind of evolved out of it in, in practice okay um so it's it's used um it's used by people doing kind of um, pilates or yoga and other kind of uh body oriented movement practices um and uh, as i mentioned weightlifting as well but it's it's okay. uh it, you're more or less bending without arching your back okay so hinging at the hip in fact yes uh, it's kind thing. of like makes you look like an orangutan, yes. or a gorilla, or a bonobo. Okay, and, and, and what advantages does this give you when you're sword and bucklering? It gives you an amazing reach. Yep. Okay. So uh, you're you're, you're so quite I, tall, aren't you? Uh, what's your definition of tall? Well, you see, okay, my wife is five eleven, and I'm five seven and a half eight. So I okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't. Uh, I... I was five Tall, nine. Tall's right. Tall. <laughs> <You were> five... <laughs> I was, I was okay. five nine. Five nine before my injury, and then I've, I've hunked because my muscles. Have okay, so a, a fraction over average height. Okay. 
Um, so yeah, I, I do have unusually long arms. Um, thank you, right. Granny Bob. But uh, what I um, what I think um, gives the most advantage in the 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 way that I fence with sword and buckler is the fact that you I'm leaving my defense quite far away from me, and mm -hmm. uh, because of the fact that you have a a big bloody shield in front of you, um, the mechanics of getting around it become very beautifully intricate. If okay. you're if you're practicing for sharp sword practice, if you're not going with um, you know baton or something, baton and buckler, which is right. a totally different thing, and I also do that too. Um, but okay. It's uh, it just becomes if you're if you're working with an, a, someone who's a very good fencer, it becomes beautifully mm -hmm. intricate. Um, it brings out the best of fencing. It brings out the fact that when you bind, there's so much to the mechanics of it. Um, your intention, your angle. How much pressure you're using? Mm -hmm. it, it's it's the art of the bind, and I think it's why a lot of people don't actually know how to approach sword and buckler is because you do have to have an advanced understanding of fencing already to be able to do it well. So, okay, and how does how does the hip hinge relate to this sophisticated binding? Um, I'm trying to think about how it was for me before. You, I mean, it still works without it. It's just. Uh, Perhaps it's just the way that I fence because uh, I'm extremely defensive mm -hmm. when I fence, and it's it's set up for defense. It's it's set up for you know it provides you that kind of extra space and time that you need. Um, uh, see, I'm I'm trying to think about other like later styles that don't use that. Um, well, see, I would argue actually that you find a modified hip hinge in rapier. Yes, yes, actually, I, I agree. Like with you. like. Cabafero kind of does a, a sideways hip hinge, and Fabris mm. is a forward hip hinge. Um, yeah, that's a really good. So, that's a good example. Mm. So, uh, I, I don't know if that it actually went away, but you wouldn't want to do it in armor because your center of gravity is too high. No, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I think it's. Um, mm. I'm trying to think why else it works. I mean, I have my own theories, but this isn't. This isn't. Yeah, <laughs> no one's here to listen to me talk, so you carry on. Oh, I tosh, I think. Um, I mean, it's um, it's worked for me for a really long time, and it's worked for me against people fighting me with totally different intensity levels. Um, I've had people mm -hmm. come at me. <laughs> I've had people come at me with a lot of intensity, trying to break it, and it, it just um, something about the way that I do it gives me a really excellent structure of defense. So, okay. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it works for me. Okay. Good. Um, so, so you're 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 mad about the sword and buckler. This is I'm mad this about good. sword and buckler. But I tell you what <laughs> I'm also mad about is the lack of good tools for people studying sword and buckler. Really? Oh my okay. goodness, it's terrible. So, um, so I think we're if we're looking back at the state of the sword market for long sword fences um, and rapier right. fences probably about mm, mm -hmm. eight to ten years ago. That's that's yep. about the state that we're at for people wanting to do sword and buckler. The kind of okay. bucklers on the market that are available are so limiting, overly heavy, um, poorly weighted, poorly built, and yep. uh, a lot of people just don't have access to good tools, which I think really contributes to them not getting into it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, my own my own buckler 
the one I use most, um, I got from a reenactor in about 1995. And a, the, the sword I use most was custom made, so it's not really available on the open market. Um, and I have another buckler that Roland Varchaka gave me when he visited me in Finland and taught a sort of buckler seminar for me, um, which is mostly wood with a steel mm. boss and um, a rawhide rim around the, the wood. So it's nice and light and, and mobile. And the, un, unlike the steel buckler, the, the blade doesn't, the, ba the blade will often slide off a steel buckler, but it kind of sticks to the rawhide. So when you're doing your sword and buckler with the blade and the buckler together, they stick together in a way that is, you know, gives you a, delicious. Just makes everything easier. Yeah, it <laughs> just makes delicious. everything easier. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 you're talking my language. I mean, tools make yep. the art. It's um, absolutely so so important to have access to good tools, and it's not just it's not just with sword and buckler; it's with anything you're doing. Um, have I know you ever that tried? A... Have you tried um, doing your sword and buckler windy bindy stuff with sharps? I have, yes. And how do you feel about that? <sighs> Personally, I love it. It just changes everything for me, but I don't want to bias you. If you hate it, feel free to say so. Well, the problem is that I don't have uh, my own sharps. So every time I do it, it's kind of like having a really delicious coffee and then having to go back to express, uh, you know, like, a, what is, what's it called? Instant or something. Um, right, okay. Yeah, but I, I think I blow my lips just simply because I know I'm not making the most of it, and there's so much to working with sharps, and I preach sharps. I preach them so much. Uh, always have. Um, there's so much to working with them that changes how you move, and mm -hmm. I I hesitate to comment simply because I know that that's the thing that I'm not doing enough of, given how much I love it. Um, I mean, if someone wants to sponsor to buy me a beautiful Albion, I'd be very welcoming of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, here's a thought. Um, you can get machetes for like $2 a piece. Brilliant idea. Sharpen them up a little bit with a file. Uh, that's what I do. I, I, have, I have my fancy, beautiful sharps that I only ever use for solo practice and for test cutting. Mm. And I have my cheaper sharps. With long sword, I've got um, a couple of Angus trims, which are, they're fairly old, um, and they were, they're not his like super fancy ones, they're his sort of more budget ranged ones, um, very good weapons, but not so expensive that I couldn't afford to wear them out by doing long sword drills shop on shop. Um, but for like single handed swords, I looked at them and I was like, I just can't, I can't find single handed swords that handle right, that are sharp and affordable. Because basically, when you, when, when you use a sharp sword for long enough, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So I use machetes instead Brilliant. because you can, you can wear them out. You don't have to worry about them. It's not exactly the same, mm -hmm. but I bet you anything you like, if you buy yourself a machete, uh, just a cheap one, mm -hmm. cheapest one you can get, get a pair, um, and then if you go around all the museums that have single-handed swords and you handle them, you will find one historical single-handed sword that handles the same as your machete. I think I just need to just take a moment whilst I think about that wonderful idea. Just... <laughs> <sighs> Do you know I went around the Met Museum with Peter Lyon from Weta Workshop? I know Peter very well. I can imagine what that experience was like. Oh, 
It was glorious. Educational. <laughs> well, here was the bizarre thing, though, was by the time that he and I went and caught up and went around the museum, I knew enough to give him input. My mind was really? blown. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. It was, okay. it was, it was a, a Twilight Zone moment or something. Um, Peter, I, I used to work kind of, I didn't work directly with him, but I was in, you know, in the workshop and uh, so became friends yeah. with him because we were both doing jousting. And, um, he was a wonderful, wonderful person. And, a lot of time for him and it's wonderful yeah. work. And, and, and he's a walking encyclopedia when it comes to swords. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And yeah, his library, uh, when I was getting into medieval um, mm -hmm. everything, he, uh, he allowed me to look through his library, which he's put together over decades. And it's, it, I, wow. I hope um, one day when heaven forbid he should leave this earth, he donates it to some, you know, school or something because it's an astonishing resource. He, uh, he yeah, inspired maybe, me. maybe a university library me. or something. Yeah, no, well. he showed me what a library could be. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, well, I, I yeah. shall have to go to his house next time I'm in Welly. Yes, yes, you should. Did you hear that, Peter, <laughs> if you're listening to this, I'm expecting an invitation to tea, are we clear? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, going to the Met Museum with him was a true treat. Um, Definitely, definitely uh, one of the highlights of probably my, my life, even though it wasn't an active, you know, sword fencing moment. Um, okay. So if there, was one, if there was one sword you could have in any collection anywhere in the world, just the one, which one would you go for? I actually, um, I really love the sword that, um, that Peter Johnson made for the 2015 Selingan Knife Show. Um, it is an original okay. that was based on um, based on his work, and mm -hmm. uh, he's you know as a lot of listeners are probably aware he's uh, the form, one of the foremost researchers on on medieval swords that we have at the moment um, in his work. Yeah, on sword design particularly. Yes, there we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, he's a first class smith, but his work on the design is extraordinary too. He, uh, he most notably discovered that medieval swords um, were designed to geometric uh, ratios um, and sure. they correspond to uh, they correspond to, to ratios um, within themselves so everything everything every part of the sword relates to another part of the sword in a beautifully mathematically succinct way um, and I actually have um, I actually have on my arm tattooed the sword that oh, I right. which uh, oh wow which, which has his his circles on it yeah yes so, so that's that's the sword, is it? It's it's probably the most beautiful sword that I've ever seen. And so, if that's if there's the one sword you could have, that would be the one. Indeed. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll have to find a photograph of that and and stick it in the show notes so oh, people can happily, see. Happily, happily furnish you with, <laughs> furnish you with that, sir. Please do. Excellent. Okay. Um, now we've been talking for a little while. Um, is there anything you particularly would like um, the listeners to come away with? Any any words of advice? Any requests? Anything you, you have their ear? How would you like to use it? Well, I think I'd just like to encourage people to feel comfortable exploring. Um, I think there's a lot of kind of mainstreaming of, of martial arts going on at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly since I got into it, uh, Think people have started to feel a bit restricted um, compared to what I what I 
kind of saw when I first approached it. I think, I think okay. it's one of the wonderful and, and terrible things about when something becomes very successful is, you know, you get all these kind of firm boundaries in place. And in, in some senses, that's important because it can create the safety that we need for, you know, for people to train and avoid situations mm -hmm. like what I mentioned earlier. Um, but on the downside, it, it can restrict people um, knowing what's possible, I think, and realizing that, you know, you can contribute as much as, as take in um, from the arts. I think that there's, there's still so much to be explored, so much to be discovered. Um, so many, you know, attics that haven't been opened that contain yeah. immeasurable treasures of knowledge that we don't have yet. So I, yeah. I really, if anything, want to encourage people to keep that kind of frontier um, enthusiasm that, that defines so much of yours and my approach to swordsmanship. Okay. Frontier enthusiasm. That's, that's, that's a good phrase. I'm just going to write that down. <laughs> I am here all night. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Sam, thank you very, very much for taking the time to Truly talk to Truly a pleasure. Um, thank you for inviting me. And, oh, and I, I look forward to seeing you next time I'm in Australia or Canada or wherever else in the world we happen to be at the same time. Excellent. Well, stay safe and uh, keep doing the excellent work that you're doing. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Sam. Remember to go to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast to get the episode show notes and your free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And please remember to subscribe to the Sword Guy podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Tune in next week when I'll be interviewing Arian Scott. See you then.